friends. It's another Monday with Mark. And if, if I'm smiling, you know, if you see the video right now, you can see I'm smiling. It's because it's because I know that as you listen to this, uh, I'm not actually here in my studio. Believe it or not, this is pre-recorded, everybody. Uh, I'm not actually here in my studio in the Mark Claire Show studio. I'm actually in Las Vegas where I just had my wedding. Now, yeah, as listeners of the show and who follow me from Lions Liberty know I've been mar- married for a few years, but uh, we had our wedding in 2020 and there was nobody there but my wife and I. So what will have already happened by the time you view this will be my wedding, uh, which took place in Las Vegas this past weekend. And uh, I imagine I had a great time. Um, Although it's possible I'm not feeling great right now. In in reality, I may be recovering from that time more so, but I'm currently smiling about how great a time I will know I will have had by the time you watch this, if that makes sense. You know what else is a great time? Starting every single morning with a cup of Fox and Sons coffee. I don't think I have the bag next to me as I sometimes do here as a prop, but believe you me, it is real. It is genuine. It is legitimate. It is excellent, excellent coffee brought to you by my friend Stephen Fox and his sons. That's why the company is called Fox and Sons. You can find them over at foxandsons.com. That's F-O-X, the letter N, S-O-N-S.com. What I want you to do there, get yourself Get yourself a wedding gift for me. How about that? Let's put it that way. It's actually a gift for yourself, so it's not that bad. I'm not going to ask you to send me something. Just go to foxandsons.com. Find yourself some beans. The dark blend is what I really like. That's my kind of primary, my go-to. I really enjoyed the Costa Rican honey prep. It was a really nice little smooth uh, smooth alternative to my normal, slightly more bitter um, dark blend that I usually like. So choose your, choose your poison. Pick your poison, but it's not poison. It's wonderful elixir that will make you have a fantastic day as I do every single day when I start my day with Fox and Sons coffee. So I want you to use discount code MCS Mark Claire show. That's going to get you 18% off your first order. Get yourself a gift. 18% of it's on me. Really, you should be getting me something. I'm getting you something. I'm getting you 18% off a bag of coffee. So go ahead, check out a sponsor. Supporting a great sponsor uh, like Stephen Fox at Fox and Sons is a great thing all around because it encourages him to continue to be a sponsor of this show, which is nice, which encourages me to continue to do this show, which you love so much that you're sitting here as a rant about coffee, just waiting for this interview. So now that has said, now that that has been said and done, uh, I will present to you my discussion with. Tom Luongo. I think you're going to enjoy this one, kids. Back to the pool for me. My guest today is the head honcho over at Gold Goats and Guns. It's a blog. It's a podcast. It's a Patreon. It's a little bit of everything. And through all these mediums, uh, he delivers hard-hitting analysis on economics through the lens of global politics. And as we discussed before the show, he's also a fellow Florida man. I'm very pleased to welcome Tom Luongo. Tom, welcome to my show. Thanks, Mark. Thank you for the invite. And Glad you're, you've, you're, uh, you've made your way to the great state of uh, Florida, uh, soon to be probably the Sunshine Republic thereof, but we'll see. Well, we, we can only hope. Maybe we'll get into that uh, a little bit later <laughs> on. Um, but uh, there's a lot of directions I want to go with you, Tom, a lot of different subjects to touch on. But before I get into any of that, I want to learn just a little bit more about you. So uh, if you could just give us a little bit of your background, how you first became interested in, in economics, global politics, everything you talk about on your show. So, so it starts with um, going uh, with losing a whole bunch of money in the dot com bust in two thousand. Not a lot of money by by historical standards, but for me at the time it was. And then just kind of like, what happened, right? Mm-hmm. And as you do that, you do that. Oh my God, what happened? And you know, at the ninety nine two thousand, I wasn't even politically active. I was mostly just politically, I don't know, inactive. Like I just, I always knew from like the time I'm like eight. I'm like, no, they're all just grifters. And 
you know, it's just a big club and we ain't in it. Literally at like eight or nine years old, I'm like, you know, the Democrats suck and so do the Republicans. And, and I don't know, in all of that commentary, and I was working at the time, I was doing a lot of commuting. I was, I was bouncing between jobs in 99 and 2000, trying to find a new home. I was a chemist at the time. And, you know, the industry was going through a shakeup, the environmental chemistry um, laboratory industry was going through a shakeup. It was a lot of consolidation, a lot of people losing their jobs and moving around. So I found myself in the car listening to an awful lot of talk radio. And um, fell in listening to Neil Bortz, and, and he said, hey, go take the world's smallest political quiz. I did. Found out, oh, I know why I hate the Republicans and Democrats. I'm a libertarian. And then I literally came home and I went, honey, I know what our problem is. We're libertarians. And then she's like, what? <laughs> it was hilarious. Right? I, I, I literally remember doing this. And, um, and then I just kind of, I found myself over at lewrockwell.com Then I found myself at the Mises Institute and then they were providing the answers to those questions. And in effect, that became my hobby and it became a kind of thing that I just did for years. And then, and behind the scenes, I had always wanted to be a writer in some way, manner, shape or form, but I'm sitting here as a chemist, you know, trying to, you know, I, now I'm, you know, after about a year after that, I, I started uh, a job as a lab manager over at you know, the University of Florida attached to a, a group at IFAS, uh, soil and water science, doing research. And then after that, I wound up taking a, a job in South Florida doing uh, metallurgy and uh, electrochemistry for a novel uh, plating company. So I have 25 years as a bench and research and chemist and laboratory manager. So I have a, and understand as an undergraduate, I was into high energy physics and the quantum theory project, which I almost went and got my PhD in. And then decided against it. And this is the path that I'm on this morning. I'm on, I'm on there. Well, once that career kind of ended in 2011, um, you know, this hobby of mine and the blog, I started blogging on the side in the background and, and a variety of other things. This hobby then became, well, I, I can't get a job. I'm, I'm 25 years experience with a BS in chemistry. No MFA. Um, well, not an MFA. Sorry, no MBA. Not MFA. Jesus, it's completely different. Um, and... Uh, no MBA, no PhD. I'm unhirable because I'm overqualified for anything that would sustain me. And I'm underqualified for the HR departments to actually even give me an interview. So I wound up just, you know, bumming around. And eventually I fell in with a, uh, a guy uh, writing over in Vietnam. And I wound up ghostwriting his book and uh, forming a, a partnership with him and learning how to, you know, read balance sheets and write financial articles and whatnot. And I did that for a year and a half, actually writing, on, writing as a ghostwriter. Uh, eventually, I came out from behind the scenes and started writing for Seeking Alpha because I needed to make more money because I was making nothing. Um, and within six months, I got picked up by Newsmax to write Gold Stock Advisor, and then I've been on this path ever since. So that's really fascinating that you spent that much time in really a completely un unrelated in interest industry. But um, you, you kind of jokingly mentioned earlier that you said to your wife, you know, this is our problem is that we're libertarians <laughs> and right. it's, it's a joke, but it is actually kind of what I like a, a lot about your analysis is that, yeah, you have that libertarian aspect of you where you see the absurdity of the system, the absurdity of a lot of the players involved, but you still live in the real world and learn to navigate that in the real world. And I think a lot of libertarians do get stuck in the sort of problem zone where you become so 
it almost becomes part of the identity to hate the system and hate everything that's going on and your solution to everything is to end it. Yeah, maybe the solution to everything is to end a lot of the bad stuff, but but that doesn't change what's going on in reality. So you still have to find a way to navigate this reality, which is sort of why I broke away from the uh, the political, the straightly political um, you know world in the first place to try to figure out how we can actually take this knowledge we have, this sort of esoteric knowledge that 90% of the population doesn't care to know about and use it and sort of navigate the world with it as well. Well, that's that was the thing. And when I first went to, to work for Newsmax, I was kind of your kind of doctrinaire gold bug. And within about a year and a half, like we're in the middle, I'm trying to sell a gold newsletter and rebrand the gold newsletter into something slightly different, a little bit more commodity uh, focused um, into. And I'm like, and it's failing right in the middle of a, of a brutal bear market in 2013, 2014, 2015. And I finally just had to like, look, I had to like, look myself in the mirror and go, if you want to keep doing this, you have no other option than you you're missing something here. Like the euro is not going to replace the dollar as the world's reserve currency. I, well, this is what, this was my, this is my, um, this is how down far down the, that kind of solipsistic hate the fed, hate the dollar position I was in at the time. And I'm like, no, this is all wrong. And I remember, you know, reading Jim Sinclair and him helping, you know, giving Martin Armstrong an audience while he was still in, in prison and reading those reports that were hand typed and hand drawn by Martin and, I remember resisting them completely for years and hanging out on gold websites and doing all and all of it. I'm like, this ain't working. I'm, I'm missing something here. Did you feel a conflict sort of be- between what had sort of almost become an identity in a way mm. is that sort of libertarian and the Fed um, gold all the way angle because there is a philosophical sort of thought process behind that. So it doesn't oh, yeah. it, at some point it, you, you don't want to even accept anything that goes counter to that narrative because that goes against your own identity. Absolutely. No, it is. You're, no, this is a very important point that a lot of libertarians can't get past. It's like they have to give up their, 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 their new conception of themselves. They're, you know, it's like the process of, of becoming a libertarian in many ways is almost a religious conversion process. It's very analogous, right? And I don't mean that, I, and I don't mean that um, derogatorily. I don't mean that in a pejorative sense. Like, it's a sincere psychological physical process that people go through and it's like i now have faith in something right and where i didn't have faith before and so it becomes a kind of you know i hate to put it but it, in these terms but it becomes a kind of religion right and i i yell at the bitcoin maxis for exactly the same problem they have now found the thing that they have faith in in a world where faith is fall, where there's no, where the institutions are falling apart and we're now we're, you know, we're really down the line now in 2023. It was bad in 2016, 2017. It's even worse six years later as everybody's gone completely nuts and the powers that be are, are you know, pushing every button imaginable to turn you all into you know, noradrenaline-addicted Momo junkies. Like, it's crazy, right? So I get it. I, I fully understand the desire and the impetus and everything else and the fallback on first principles and, the, and to defend yourself. It's kind of a, a, it's, it's, it's like a suit of armor. It's like an... It's an emotional set of armor that you wear. But when I, I realized in my first stint with Newsmax that, you know, I've got to start, I got to take all of my eggs out of one basket. And so I started coming out from behind the paywall a little bit. I was doing live streams on Periscope back in the day and, and you know, started tentatively rebuilding my blog and whatnot. I wound up getting um, let go from Newsmax in March of 2017. And eventually rehired a couple of years later. But at the time, I had to then go independent. And, but I remember in those early live streams during the Trump 
um, the run for Trump into to the White House and all of that stuff, built a bit of an audience, fell in with a, a fell in with a, with that crowd, picked up some people, pissed off a lot of people, a lot of people. And uh, but I remember the mantra back then was, look, I'm not analyzing the world I want. I'm analyzing the world I've got. And, you know, the world I want, we can have that discussion in 15 minutes at the end at the end of the live stream. But the world we got, that's where we are today. This is what we're analyzing. And but you can use the filter. And now this is how I, I was able to actually um, get conservatives and certainly almost, you know, like alt right adjacent conservatives to to understand where I was coming from because they hate libertarians because they think they call them libertarians, you know, LOL libertarians, right? Um, and uh, I said, you know, look, I'm not, it's a filter. It's not a, it's not a worldview that you have to accept. It's a, it's a filter through which to see the world and then see if it, if it's got predictive power, if it's got, uh, you know, some kind of, you know, ability to tell you what's happening. But, you know, it's not, I'm not telling you how to live your life and I'm not telling you, you know, you need to, you know, jettison and become an anarcho-capitalist and all the rest of that stuff. You do what you want, but this is more powerful than how are you going to analyze, you know, the world through Keynesian economics or monetarism or MMT. And you should do all those things as well, because you got to understand what those people are thinking in order to be able to, um, in order to be able to assess what their next moves are going to be, Right. Um, so one of the other things that comes into my analysis all the time, and the longer I do this, the more I out myself as a board gamer, right? Um, and I'm an intense board gamer and I play a lot of very high level. I'm not talking about like monopoly and risk and so I'm talking about like freaking brass Birmingham and a curricula and, you know, shit that would you know, blow your mind if you're not a, uh, a board gamer, because these are games that take 45 minutes to teach. I thought I was, and I've never heard of those. So now I know I'm not. <laughs> mm-hmm. What have you played, by the way? Uh, I, I like Settler, Settlers of Catan. That, that's Settlers like Catan the is a, good, is a great is a yeah. great intro to. So this is where I was there when Settlers were first introduced to the West or to the to North America, and I remember getting. I'm playing it like obsessively at a con when it first got released, when Mayday first released it, and I got a, I have my 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 edition of Settlers is literally not Mayday Mayfair, uh, the first edition, um, North American edition is an old Mayfair edition of Settlers. Um, I haven't played Catan in years, but. Uh, from Catan to Carcassonne to Ticket to Ride, those are all what we consider. Those are the those are the ba- those are the gateway. Those are the they're great games. I played Ticket to Ride as well. A friend of mine has yeah, that. Ticket to Ride is an excellent game. Yeah. Um, but then we start going up the list over at Board Game Geek and into you know the the designer board game arena of you know what what. What designers do you like? I can tell is you. Is there like I a board game know. version of the dark web? Like you gotta, you gotta meet, <laughs> you find is, some of these games in a back alley somewhere. Well, and- <laughs> no, 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 no. You can go to your friendly local game shop. You can go to Amazon. <laughs> you can get them all. Like, oh, so a lot of the classics are, are from that period are out of print now. But I mean, when you sit down and you talk to OG board gamers like myself, you know, who but before that had, before Settlers even came out, were, had played all the old Avalon Hill games, like Advanced Civilization and Dune and Starship Troopers and, Titan and Republic of Rome and all these like that these games that came out of old American style board gaming that were eight to ten hours long to play or advanced squad leader that you set up and play all year like you know <laughs> every weekend for an entire year that kind of thing you that's know, really interesting too actually board gaming you, changed that and we got into ninety minute we got into these ninety minute efficiency puzzles that right. a lot of the games are today 
Yeah, I, I wonder how much that your interest in board games sort of um, plays into your analysis of, of politics in a way, oh, global absolutely. politics, because, you know, the, the key to winning a board game is seeing beyond just one or two moves. It's it's, zoom, it's kind of pulling out and seeing the big picture and looking, OK, what's 15 moves from now going well, to get I, for me? I, I, yeah, a, a lot of the a lot of games are, are both strategic and tactical. Like, so like chess is a purely strategic game because there's no hidden information. Right. And Go is the same kind of thing. It's a, it's a, you can decide in chess and in Go you decide, for example, how strategic or how tactical you're going to be depending on how you play the game. If you decide to get into little knife fights, you're playing tactically. If you decide to put soft power in play, placing stones around the board for to to eventually then you know allow your strategy to emerge and and preempt the tactics from the, the tactical battles from ever taking place. And respecting your opponent in the process—that's different. But in a lot of these other, a lot of these other games, they're really about getting to a specific spot before another person is, and you know, shaving a point here, shaving two points there, and um, and then deciding on you know what kind of possibly what kind of engine you're going to try and build, which will give you as your game will develop differently than somebody else's game will develop, and then at the end, once the the once the game is done, and we've you know, acquired all the resources that the game has available to it. Well, who, who did it better, right? And then you usually measure that in victory points or something like that. And then you have games that are, um, that are all about blocking each other's ability to uh, execute, right? And so when you start talking about um, that, you start seeing those types of, of their, their multiplayer puzzles at that point. And because they're multiplayer games, there's a certain amount of it's an artificially constructed world where I go, you go, I go, you go. But then there's also the games that allow you to manipulate turn order. So like go last in one round, and then first in the next round, two turns in a row. Well, you see a lot of that in, you know, I can tell you, you know, that happens in games like Five Tribes and Brass Birmingham and, and others. These are great classic games. Um, that you see this in, in geopolitics all the time, where someone will make a move in order to preempt another move in order to be able to take another. And so, yeah, it's everywhere. When I, would, when I went to the Ron Paul Institute's uh, conference on foreign policy last summer, um, I gave the talk about, you know, geopolitics, the great game of geopolitics, and, and compared it to, imagine a seven-player game of Go with seven different types of with colored stones on the board, not just black and white. And then all of a sudden, Go is a completely different game. And it's a game that never ends because there's no way to hive off any territory for yourself because there's seven people that can go, there's the six other people that are going to go before you can. And those uh, area control aspects are all designed around a two-player experience. So imagine the chaos of that and then how to analyze that in real time. It's very, very difficult. Right. Well, that, that is kind of akin to what you're doing here on the global scale, trying to analyze all of this, all of these moves in real time. So, um, mm -hmm. you know, there's, there's a few directions I want to sort of dive into with you, but maybe it sure. might work best to sort of uh, lay out the board a little bit. And maybe you could break down sort of how you see the global economic, the global economic system from a political perspective. Like, who are the main players? There's, of course, there's the countries that we all know that are named the way they're named that you can point at the regions, etc. But then who are the players behind those different the different oh, sort of God, again, countries. Again, that's like you know in, in that respect let's let's break it down to really very very simply there are three areas there's well there's two areas there's the east and there's the west and the west is split into two groups the west is fighting amongst themselves the east is becoming a a block right and before this it was you know much more difficult but you know um nominally you have the BRICS, and i've never really been comfortable with that acronym 
for a variety of reasons, not the least of which is that there are that one, the original assessment of the five BRICS nations, the I, especially India, um, was always, you know, fluid in terms of their allegiance. Um, I really see the core of that uh, of that world centered around the RIC alliance of Russia, China, and Iran, not India. And India doesn't like the fact that Iran has been and now has been elevated, and so now it's. Now we have two eyes and bricks, right? And the South Africa have never really been comfortable with either for a variety of reasons. And now Saudi Arabia has become, you know, is quickly moving into alliance with them, but only because of the moves made by Russia, China, and Iran diplomatically to create a kind of triangle of power similar to the triangle of power, say, within the European Union between Germany, France, and Italy, right? The European Union as a bloc only exists because of that those three those three countries you knock any one of those three out and there is no european union um but the west is absolutely splitting apart in my in my um estimation between the eurozone block and the anglo block between which is effectively the americans and the british commonwealth and the europeans which i like to call davos that's going after the Anglo, the members of the Anglosphere, being betraying Brexit, having Justin Trudeau and Christy Friedland in charge of Canada, what they've done in Australia and New Zealand uh, at that level. So, you know, but at the same time, the political control that quote unquote Davos has centered around the the political and economic control they have over Europe has failed the sniff test this point in time because they don't have they have political control but not monetary control over the united states because the federal reserve and the banking industry here in the united states has um is what's really at war with not only itself but also what's happening in europe at the same time and that's all centered around the federal reserve and the new york and the new york money center banks and the split between them and city of london right and over the last I want to say the last year and a half or so, that might not be exactly accurate, but somewhere around that, you've been really kind of touting the Fed's moves at, or sort of predicting that they would continue to raise rates and not buckle against the, the pressure to pivot away from that. And it's it's interesting because the, the libertarian instinct, of course, is to be against the Fed, to never praise anything happening at the Fed. But when you pull out and look at things in the way you do, okay, there's the ideal world we might want that doesn't have a Federal Reserve, that is free market money, yada, yada, yada. Cool. That doesn't exist right now. So then within that, looking at what's going on, and uh, maybe you can dig further there on, on how you see the Fed's moves in some ways, maybe being the only thing sort of preventing us from going, you know, full Davos, as you might say. Right. Um, and that is the, the, the big question, right? And uh, I just did a great podcast with uh, our 45 minute podcast with Caitlin Long of Custodia Bank and big Bitcoiner. And uh, we had a wonderful back and forth. Uh, she challenged me on a variety of, is- of these issues. And it was wonderful to do and finally had a chance to meet caitlin it was great um one of the great things i about this is getting to meet a whole bunch of different people and then have a have open and honest discussions with them even when they don't agree with you because that's the point of you know again at the the end of the day i am a scientist like science is not consensus it's not it's collaboration and it's and it's you know um and, and it's confrontation you know i my my undergraduate I learned my way of doing things at as an undergraduate, going to Friday Symposia and watching my research director and my 
uh, and my instructor in physical chemistry challenge the work of the presenting of the of the the professor the visiting professor pre presenting his paper and everybody in the room just kind of sinking into their chairs going oh god he did it again because it's politically on you don't do that you do that you're supposed to do that behind the scenes and nope there was dr b going you know going full guns because as far as he was concerned that's science right it's 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 about emotional not emotional intellectual and philosophical and scientific honesty and inquisition not about the politics so that being said um what i think is going on here uh, is the fed is only acting in its own best interest this is fundamentally all i'm arguing for right the fed is the issuer ultimately of the global reserve currency and i do believe that that chairman powell understands that that is a time-limited um, privilege. I also believe that he believes it should be a time-limited privilege. He says, much said so to the U.S. Senate, saying there's room in the world for more than one reserve currency. Right. He said this last year, at a, uh, year and a, a little over a year ago, at a Humphrey Hawkins testimony after he was reconfirmed. Right Now, When you think about it, when, when the Fed chairman says something like that, you have to believe that that philosophically is now part of their policy and, you know, and, and is informing their policy. So now you got to ask yourself, okay, well, what, is, what are the threats to the Fed's future? Zero-bound interest rates created by Bernanke and Yellen created a situation where the Fed really didn't even exist, except to be just a, ba just a, a big, you know, sump pump of toxic assets that they put on their balance sheet for 15 years. Well, if the Fed wants to regain control over its own policy and have control over its monetary policy, what does it got to do? Well, it only has one tool, as Ron Paul likes to point out, to manipulate interest rates. He's not wrong. I love Ron. I've met Ron. I'm indebted to Ron. He's not wrong. He's absolutely right. So we're going to move interest rates back up. Now, after 15 years or 13 years, however many years, of zero bound rates, do we not have a almost maximally distorted pricing market for dollars all the way around the world and asset prices based on dollars all the way around the world? Of course we have. Yeah. We have almost infinite leverage created within the offshore dollar markets. And so the Fed pulling back on interest rate or pulling interest rates up and forcing leverage down should give them should give them some amount of control back over their own monetary policy if they have the infrastructure in place to be able to make that stick which they've never had in the past because the indexing rate for US debt was always the London Interbank offer rate which is an unsecured rate set by 18 city of London banks only one of which has US any US character whatsoever which was J.P. Morgan's London office, and the rest of them are all either continental Europe, and some of which, some of whom are city of London, right? So now, when they get into trouble, LIBOR would blow out, blow out to the upside. LIBOR rates would blow out to the upside, far above wherever the Fed had the the, the Fed funds rate, and then the Fed, with you know, if they had a compliant Fed, Bernanke, Yellen, Greenspan, this is what the Fed put is, 
the Fed would then cut rates, go back to the zero bound or can cut rates aggressively like Greenspan did, going from like 6% back to down to 1%. And then Bernanke would raise, raise the rate, cause the financial crisis, and then, went to, then immediately the zero in QE. Yellen continued this for another freaking 10 years. And we're stuck. And even Powell was stuck trying to raise rates and then cock blocked from being able to do so. Why? Because he was still tied to LIBOR. He was still tied to the offshore dollar markets, the leverage within the euro dollar system, and the, and the intermingling of U.S. banks with offshore banks in terms of their liabilities and the web of, of repo markets and everything else and the shadow banking system. And I'm not saying that the shadow banking system has been completely decoupled, but it's certainly been decoupled at a very high level for the last, four, the last three or four years when American banks refused to ex- start accepting European sovereign debt as repo collateral. What do you mean when you say shadow banking system? What does that mean exactly? The shadow banking system is basically, imagine, it's like, it's, it's, shadow banking is, is where, the, where two banks, where a bank does business with another bank or with another person without it actually um, taking the deposits and then the bank making the loan. No, the depositor in the bank is making the loan to another depositor in another bank. And that means that that transaction is not regulated by banking regulations. It's not, it doesn't fall under the purview of the bank's balance sheet or anything else. And that web is what actually can, it's, that is what actually caused the 2008 financial crisis. Anybody wants a, a quick and dirty primer on this, I absolutely recommend Daniel Martino Booth's book, Fed Up, because she goes into that, this all in the second half of that book to explain what happened in 2008. Um, and I, guy you may or may not know the name of now, Zoltan Pozar, who was the guy who figured all this stuff out. And then the Fed had no idea what was going on. Um, and, um, and so this is how leverage was created at the zero bound for all these years that puffed up all these markets and then created an immense amount of money, credit money, that was then used to buy governments, rig elections, blah, 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 and all the things that, you know, pay for the MIC, pay for all this stuff, all this bad stuff that we all, all, all us libertarians complain about all day long, all this corruption was all fueled by this. And then to watch libertarians, nominally libertarians, and I'm going to name names now, like Brent Johnson at Sandy, uh, of Dollar Milkshake Theory, Jeff Snyder, who created the, who first informed us of how important the euro dollar markets are, and others are now screaming, saying, no, the euro dollar system was a free market system designed to combat the central planning of the Fed. I'm like, I'm sorry, that's a Davos talking point I'd like I've ever, I, like I've, I, if I've ever heard one. When this was never a free market system. This was always a kind of, the, no, no different than the equivalent of like a public-private partnership. This is a fascist banking system in that sense. Whereas, like, the, the, would anybody argue... Would any, would any serious libertarian argue that like Lockheed Martin or Raytheon are private companies? Right, no. No. Not, not a serious not. one. No, Plenty not a serious, serious libertarian would. who understands second order effects. Mm-hmm. Well, the euro dollar system is of control of the of control of interest rate policy set by the very people who are, you know, <laughs> who are controlling the thing in the first place. Right. Right. So the idea not- of free market money, free market banking, that's not on the table. It's, it's kind of like, which fascists can we sort of root for, I guess, in this situation? Exactly. Exactly. So, I mean, I, I'm, just, I, I'm, I'm just over all this stuff. And I'm looking at the, you know, like I say this all the time, like the hours late, Sauron's forces are moving. Gandalf was just 
a rescue from the Tower of Orthanc, and you know we got to paste Jer- Jerome Powell's face on him, and now we got to figure <laughs> out whether or not we can, you know, turn him into Gandalf the White and actually stop these people. Like this is what we're dealing with. You know, we're fighting Satan here. Like you know, like I hate you know I hate, but it's but it's reality. This is where we are, right? So you know, we can argue about we we can go after the Fed later on, but I'm happy to do so because I don't believe in central banking. I think it's dumb. Um. And I think it's anathema to human creativity and it's anathema to human ingenuity and all the rest of it. Now, no less Rothbardian, no less a Rothbard acolyte than I was 15 years ago. I'm just, I live in the real world. And the real world is, is that sometimes bad people have the same incentives that you have because, you know, they're fighting the same people you are. And it's not enemy of my enemy is my friend. It's mutual coincidence of wants over temporal, over a specific period of time, right? Over a temporal time, uh, temporal frame. And that's it. That's all it is. So when the Fed's at the zero bound, there is no Fed. They're just another euro dollar bank. In, in effect, they're almost, they're almost a shadow bank. They're almost their own shadow bank, right? Because now they've got, they're, they're doing all the shenanigans with their balance sheet behind the, behind the scenes. And as Caitlin Long pointed out the other day, the, MMT crowd says the, that the, the, the balance sheet doesn't matter. Only, you know, only the cash flow matters. They're wrong. The balance, the balance sheet doesn't matter when everybody wants to ignore the balance sheet. And then all of a sudden the balance sheet matters. And, and I've used the phrase for years, debt saturation, up until the point where you can't issue, up until the point where there's debt capacity left, right? Um, within the financial system, you can, the balance sheet doesn't matter. You can continue to take debts onto the balance sheet and continue to lever things up. But once you reach the point where you, the debt servicing costs equal the productive capacity, ooh, and now we're here. Now you can't issue any more debt. Now the balance sheet matters. And you either have to inflate the balance sheet, the, the, the liabilities away on the one hand, which is hyperinflation, or you got to let it all collapse, which is hyperdeflation. And guess what? Those are two sides of the same coin. Again, as Ron Paul has pointed out time and time again, the hyperinflation and deflation are exactly the same process. It's a choice as to which we're going to do. And many, especially of the older variety, especially of the boomer variety, are scared to death of deflation. They think deflation is far more societally cancerous than hyperinflation. And they would rather see it inflated away than deflated away. That is the argument that Davos is making. That's why they want to go to MMT. That's why they want to unmoor money one last time from the last iteration of tying it to any kind of opportunity cost for the generation of new monetary units. And therefore, that's where we are. The Fed, on the other hand, is saying, no, we don't have to do that. We can actually, and, and not even the hard money crowd, but we have to decide whether or not, as philosophically as a species, whether we're going to allow the state to determine the risk, the, the risk of, uh, of, uh, of investment, or we're going to allow the commercial banks to do it, even if the commercial banks are compromised entities, which they are, and corrupt entities, which they are. Does the Davos crowd essentially at the end of the day with the, the sort of inflationary policies they're, they're pushing forward, is their end goal here just the collapse of all these current currencies to bring in whatever the replacement may be that it, they have in mind? It is, and it's also to flatten, it's also to do away with and flatten supply and demand. Such that we have no longer do we have a, 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 a we have a, a, the supply and demand curve that looks like this. We have basically we have basically a square, 
um, you know, they just they just want a flat supply and demand curve that they can control. So fully monetary control. communism, essentially. Yeah, in effect, and that's what they want, and they just don't believe that they're that we should be able to have that, and that you know, because they can't control that. They and can't. So, they can't. They, but they're going to lose because, like, they they these people are ultimately, you know, they're ultimately wrong because they don't believe in the law of diminishing marginal utility and therefore they don't believe in comparative advantage and they don't believe in the fact that humans are like electrons and the minute you start to surveil them they go and they do shit that you weren't expecting them to do and the more pressure you put on them the more six sigma behavior you get from them which leads usually to revolutions people getting guillotined and all the rest of it so as usual they're just looking at the charts and graphs and not realizing that economies are made up of humans that you know make choices and all this misesian type stuff yeah no they they absolutely don't believe they believe that they can control all of our, all of our behavior through predictive AI. I, I use the phrase all the time that they just want minor, minority report, but with more Germans. <laughs> and you replace the precogs from the Phil, Philip K. Dick story with AI. And again, you know, you ask what my background is, you know, the first real, I would say the first real novel I wrote, I read in my entire life was Dranderous Dream of Electric Sheep by Philip K. Dick. Before that, I didn't really read. And then that was the book that changed, began to change my life. And then since, and then everything else since then is just a, you know, a, you know, uh, we're kind of downstream of that because once I understood that, you know, empathy is what ruled, empathy is what builds civilizations. That's what that book is about. Um, and what's, it's what, it's what takes us out of dystopia. Um, then it's a matter of understanding what's fake, what's real, what are, what's, what are real human impulses and what are, what are fake human impulses and then understanding that you know power is always trying to substitute the airsats for the real and then make you and then sell you your life back to you with a toll booth and be you know and then they're in between and therefore control mechanism so that's the uh that's the old 2030 you know you'll own nothing and be happy kind of thing yeah this this whole system is going to collapse uh but don't worry we're going to take care of you via whatever it may be um you know well, their various they, welfare what, systems and what have you yeah what they're, they're gonna, what they're going to do is they're going to default on all the, the the defined benefit pension systems which are all broke and they're just going to replace it with you know central bank digital money and those going to pay you UBI that's why they're pushing for all of these things okay and they're getting us ready for that. And they're going to use World War III with Russia and China to get that to happen, to, to cause the excuse for that to happen and why we need to do this. And, I mean, I can just see them setting up all of these systems to, you know, have rolling, <laughs> excuse me, rolling crises, one after the other after the other, which eventually will get the people which they, they believe they'll just be able to herd the people into going, okay, look, look at the end of it, we're going we're gonna to forgive all your debts and we're going to roll them up on the, the balance sheet and then the balance sheet won't matter and here's some money and go spend it. And uh, here are the prices for things and, but you're only allowed to spend them on the things that we tell you you're allowed to spend them on. And I, I just look at that and I go, really? Th- they really haven't come to, to understand that the more you try, well, Again, I'm, a, I'm nothing if not an infinite font of pop culture references. The more you tighten your grip target, the more star systems will slip through your fingers. Like these are the, this is the these are age old stories. It doesn't matter if you use biblical references or pop culture references or whatever. Like we've been telling they last us, for a reason because there's truth within them. Because stories are how one generation 
informs the next generation how to fight the freaking tyrant who tried to steal your life the last time. And the, and the circumstances change, but the fundamentals of the conflicts are universal because people are people. As Martin Armstrong likes to point out, people are people. They haven't, they're not going to change. Human nature is not going to change. And we're, you know, but with each iteration of this, the methods of control become more sophisticated as technology um, moves forward. But technology is also liberating at the same time. And I like to say, you know, I, I've said this before and I'll say it again, that, you know, in certain cultures around the, in, in the world, you know, 500 years we were praying to the sun god. And then, you know, then the enlightenment happened and we've had a 300-year, um, you know, refutation of, of uh, faith and, and, uh, and, and um, no, faith and, and spirituality. And, you know, that's going to reach its peak and then it's going to fall off and then we're going to have a resurgence. And it's, it, but I always like to look at it as the forces that are creating decentralized processes are out, are, are out competing in the long run because they're cheaper to maintain a decentralized system than a maximally centralized central planning system. Because of that, the forces of decentralization are breaking the tyrants down um, with each cycle of history, and we're moving to we're and we're moving up the human liberty scale. But we always go, but we do so in a random walk pattern, in a cyclic kind of upwardly sloping sine wave, and we happen to be at the nadir in terms of human liberty at this moment in time, and you know, hopefully, the world I leave my daughter with, and I you know, I and I leave you guys with being, a, 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 I assume, about a generation older than you, you know, we'll leave you with the foundation with, by which to start building the next, you know, great cycle of history. And we'll see how that works out. But that's where we are. That is the uh, the nice part about your analysis and, and what you've been talking about out there is, you know, I think a lot of in the realm I inhabit now, which crosses a, a lot of different realms, but there's a lot of focus on the WDEF, the Davos crowd, um, all of their evil plans and evil machinations. And yes, they are uh, frightening visions, you might say, that they have of they the world are. of the world they'd like to bring in. But the nice thing, as you point out, is that they are visions. They are not realities. And maybe just as the libertarian, we want the Fed ended tomorrow vision is not a reality. Neither is this world that they think can just be ushered in where they just completely control the money and they tell us what we can buy and what we cannot. And everyone's just going to sit in their pod, eat the bugs and be happy about it. Yeah, well, sit in a pod, eat bugs, um, you know, make assisted suicide a, a growth industry, you know, kill off half the population of the planet because they can't control them. I mean, these people are just Thanos. There's a reason why Thanos and Davos rhyme, right? Like, it's, I, again, I, I just like, just, just, just keep thinking, just keep thinking it through. And then the keep, and it, the, the most, uh, you know, the most reprehensible thing I've seen in pop culture was trying to humanize Thanos for killing off half of, you know, the world. Oh, they were they were non sarcastic. Thanos had a good point. Articles out there, you know, probably from the Davos people. You know, I guess they were written by. Like, <laughs> right. and then you watch and you're like you watch this like stuff Shaw, and you're Shaw. like, huh? Like, if I can do one thing, and I say this I, again, I say this all the time. There's one thing I can do to, well, in all the stuff that I do, if there's one high level takeaway, it's always identify the Malthusian. The, the Thomas Malthus arguments within the, uh, the, 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 the Malthusian position within a particular argument and then just reject it once you see it. Because Malthusian thinking is always wrong. Because Malthusian thinking rejects 
the law of diminishing marginal utility, which is what governs almost every bit of our behavior. And it's not really terribly difficult. Okay? Like, it, you know, I, no one is going to argue with, with you and say, look, and we all understand what the law of diminishing marginal utility is, right? Do you understand what I mean when I say that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, I just want to make sure that we're, we're, we're on, we've defined terms. So the law of diminishing marginal utility is not particularly difficult. It's, a, it's just a statement of, of the acquisition of the next unit of a particular thing is less useful to you than the previous, it, the previous unit of that thing that you got. So in the extreme case, if you're a man dying of thirst, that first drop or drink of water is maximally valuable to you. Is the next drink of water as valuable? No. It's 99% as valuable. But then eventually, if you get too much water, you drown. At some point, it has negative value. Yeah, you only need so much. You only need so much water. So whatever you value at that moment in time, does it? And it, and what the what the law of diminishing marginal utility ultimately tells you is that there's a time component to all human needs and wants based on you know where they are and where that person is at that moment in their life. And your need for water is going to be different than my need for water, which is going to be different than a person living in the desert's need for water. Blah 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 blah. And you know, once you secure that source of water into the future, that no longer becomes a driver of your behavior. You can now focus on a different want or a different need or, you know, whatever those, those things are. And it's always the satisfaction of needs that is what drives our behavior. Now, once you understand that, you understand that Malthus was doing what, I, what my, my partner Dexter White likes to call push the slider bar to the right in Excel and, you know, create a, create a linear projection over a short run of, behavior and then go oh look if it's like this now it must be like it's gonna be like just, this tomorrow just draw the line and you're good and draw a line and go yeah see so we had you know a this is how they they sold us climate change oh look the temperatures went up by a degree over 20 years and if that continues to for another century then we're all gonna die no that's assuming that your variable that you isolated your single variable you isolated co2 concentration of the atmosphere is the cause and not a correlation is the cause of the, the change and not a consequence of some other change, which is what I've, I've argued for, for years. Like I always, I, I looked at my, my shit lib friends 15 years ago, literally sat there in their, in their kitchens at like Christmas, like, you know, get, get togethers after Christmas, having political arguments. And I just looked at them and I go, why do you believe that CO2 is a driver of climate change as opposed to a warning that something else is changing. Why do you believe that? Because you were told this by NPR? Or have you actually looked at the numbers and have you actually thought about the geology and have you thought about the, the, the geomechanics and the celestial mechanics and everything else that go along with it? Or do you know anything about any of this stuff? And I'm talking to these people who have, you know, degrees in friggin', you know, zoology and, you know, work as IT guys at UF. And I'm like, and here I am, a high-energy physicist, going... You really don't know a fucking thing. And maybe you should shut the fuck up. And maybe, just maybe, you should show a little goddamn humility. And not just parrot the prevention principle at me because, you know, you're scared. And it's like, and it's my responsibility to, you know, to be codependently um, tied to your anxiety. How about I give you 50 bucks and you go get some therapy? Because that's what you need. We don't need less CO2 in the atmosphere. You just need therapy. That does seem to be the big driver in many ways of how they, at least how they are attempting to reshape the, the economy is by just 
pushing massive anxiety creating events, uh, whether yes. it's the, the Kuvi Wuvi, whether it's the war in your Ukraine, climate change, uh, an old favorite to fall back on whenever it is always this horrible thing is going to happen. So give us more power because we'll take care of it. We figured it out. We yeah, have the chart. But that's the, but that's the, that's what it's always do. Like, look, I, I say that even as an economist, I'm like, John Maynard Keynes himself would be horrified by Janet Yellen. Okay? Because 90% of what is foisted off in the world is hyper-Keynesian, those Keynesianism, isn't even Keynesianism. Keynes would be horrified by these people. Like, and they use Keynes models to justify it. And like all that happened was, of course, when Keynes made the argument about the government's role to counter-cyclically stimulate an economy that's seeing deflationary pressures and he was writing at a time when there was plenty of per- when there was plenty of productive capacity to take on more debt governments took one look at that one ooh yay power and hayek you know argued otherwise but he was arguing at a time when we had tremendous productive capacity to take on more debt and you know effectively lever everything up and basically take the, the, the sins of the society onto the society's balance sheet. And, you know, and then in the short run, which in this case is 70 years, in economic terms, it is that's a short run. You can make this work and you can even prove the theory over the lifetime of a person. And you can validate Marxist Malthusian thinking, which is ultimately you know, Keynes, Keynes's arguments and uh, many of these collectivist, you know, um, arguments, economic arguments are all downstream of, you know, Marx and the absolute theory of value as opposed to the subjective theory of value. That's the great, that is the Austrian superpower. Austrian economics has, still has a lot of flaws because it's a very young philosophical institution. It's got a lot of work to do. It's only two generations old, really. And there's a lot of work to do. Right? But the subjective theory of value, as put forth by Menger and Vark and all and all, the, all of them, right? All of that, that intellectual work that was then codified by pe- people like Mises and Hayek and Rothbard and others, is still very young as it fights against the objective theory of value that labor, in this case, the labor theory of value, or, or, you know, like John Law and using land to back the currency or whatever, right? Value exists here in our minds because we're the only ones that can impute value into anything because we're the ones acting. And again, we're acting based on the law of diminishing marginal utility and which governs our behavior rather than the fact that, well, there's metal in this lighter that I've got here. So this has intrinsic value. Well, no, not in its current form. Because I got to take the metal in this thing, and I got to recast an energy to turn it into something else in order to use it, in order to turn it into a spoon, for example. If I no longer have cigars to, um, to, to light with this butane lighter, or there's no more butane, and now I got to like spend time and energy melting this thing down and turn it into a spoon so I can, you know, right. you'd, have to, you'd have to expend more time and money that it would than what you would get out of it at the end of the day. Well, I mean, there's opportunity cost, so this thing doesn't even have value necessarily in its current form. It may. It may have more value than iron ore in the ground, but it may not. So it may go to the landfill first <laughs> to be dug up by a future generation and go, oh, look, there's all this iron sitting in these landfills. 
which is easier to go get than to go find, open up a new iron mine somewhere else. Because, you know, we let all the iron mines go away because we went back to the stone, because we bombed each other back to the stone age with nuclear weapons. Then these things that are sitting in landfills and we rediscover the, you know, smelting and coking and all the, all the other processes that, you know, it's like, this is the cycle of history. This is what we're dealing with. And this is what, you know, we talked about in, in books like Hannibal for Leibowitz and, and uh, we've, we've seen in episodes of the Twilight Zone and, you know, even the, the you know, just, this, is, this is what we're, we're dealing with. And we have to realize that we're just part of that cycle. And, um, and Davos is, you know, they don't believe in the cycle because they want to live forever. And, um, or they want to pass on all the wealth that they've stolen to their posterity, but they keep forgetting that their posterity are a bunch of spoiled freaking brats that have no conception of value. And the, you know, the second and third generation of generational wealth always squanders this shit anyway. Or some and of them think they're going to be a, some of them think they're going to come back in a robot body or, or something like that. There's a lot of this, the transhumanist stuff in there. So maybe they think in, in, a, in 500 years when this plan all works out, they'll, they'll be able to be a, a robot. And, yeah, and, and, all, and all that science and all that stuff is, is like, that's all, that's all cute. But again, like, dude, I, you know, anybody wants a, anybody wants a reading list of the shit that, that turned me into me. Like, <laughs> like, I, I don't know if you want to live in that head, but like everyone, I mean, I, the, people have been art have been, you know, the great science fiction, uh, the, the great speculative writers of the sixties and seventies and eighties, they went through all this shit. Like, and you can see, and that's the, and we're in the second, third, second generation of these, uh, of these writers now. And, and, um, you know, it doesn't matter who you're, who you're talking about, but it all comes back to Phil Dick and Ursula again and, and freaking Norman Spinrad. And like, I can go, I can go down this rabbit hole, and then you then you get into the Richard Morgans today, and and um, and the William Gibsons and all the rest of them, and they're you know they're interesting, but they're not they're still not they still don't get it, like and you know and even even the lady in Banks, the the Scottish writer who was brilliant, but also t- unfortunately a freaking Marxist. Um, yeah, I mean you know you're just watching this stuff, and you're like everybody's like kind of rolling over in their graves because they missed all the important philosophical stuff, they missed all the religious underpinnings, they list, they missed faith. They missed the fact that they, they, so many of them missed the humility of, subje- of, of, of realizing that the universe is far more interesting than they have any right to believe that it actually, than they think it is. And if you're not, you know, willing to submit yourself to, you know, the wonder that is that, I'm sorry, dude. Like, I've studied enough quantum physics to know that I know fuck all about how the universe works. And I'm glad of it. So I have no damn right to think, sit here and think that I have any, you know, if you want to understand my libertarianism, it comes from that. Like, I don't understand any of this stuff. I know just enough to know that I don't know anything. And therefore, you know, your perspective may be as valid as mine, but you don't get to subjugate me to your will any more than I get to subjugate you to your will, to, to my will. That's it. If we can't even figure out if uh, this thing is like a particle or a wave, how are these guys going to use a chart and a graph to figure out how the economy is going to work? How how about this? We, you know, how about this? Okay. This is the thing that, this is the thing that blew my mind when I saw the, I I literally was thinking about this this morning because I was arguing with some jerk on Twitter that doesn't understand that Bitcoin is actually money um, because you can't put it on a scale and measure it versus a pound of meat. Like, 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 whatever. But when I go back to that, 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 the, all the, the basic quantum mechanics derivations of like the particle in the box, the 2D rigid rotor, blah, 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 blah. We did all this stuff. 
and um, and that you learn in a, in, a, in a physical chemistry or quantum mechanics class. You go through the mathematical derivations of this stuff. You come to Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. And Heisenberg's uncertainty principle basically says, okay, well, let's solve for the hydrogen atom, the motion of an electron, the forces acting on an electron and hydrogen atom. It's easy. You can do it with classical mechanics. You don't even need quantum mechanics to do it. You can use literally Newton, right? Force equals MA, blah, blah, blah. You can do it. But you know why? Because there's because once you assume that the that once you assume that the that the nucleus doesn't have, doesn't impact the electron at all, then it's just moving in Euclidean space, you know, with you know, and no outside forces acting on it. And you do the vector math, and oh look, we can solve for the the energy, the ground state energy of a hydrogen atom. Try and do that with helium. And you know what, helium, which is two electrons, not even like copper, which is what twenty eight electrons or twenty seven, or you know. Forget gold or you know eighty four or whatever. Like forget that. Let's just start with one. Let's just go to two, and you get the Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, which is that now the vector math is not zero. Now the vector cross product between the forces of these two acting on each other don't sum to zero, and therefore they interact with each other. They affect each other. So if you pin one in position, you don't know. So invariably, in order to solve that product, then to solve that thing mathematically, math is an in um, is an inadequate tool to solve for the, you know, to solve for Heisenberg, uh, to solve for the, the 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 ground state energies of two helium electrons. Because of that, um, you can know either position where it is or how fast it's going. Momentum, which is just velocity times mass, but you can't know both. You can either know how where something is or how fast it's going, but you can't know both at the same time. Now. How many electrons are in you? More than I could probably ever comprehend. More than, like, I just slept off more skin, I just slept off enough skin cells by doing this. There's degrees of freedom in that, and, and the slept off skin cells you can't even see that we can't even solve for. Okay? And in that universe, the world is very unknowable. At the very least, it's worth our further examination. And I think you should be a little humble in the face of that. That's it. It's not that hard. I mean, it's, it's really not that hard. And you can define that however you want. And, you know, at the end of the day, you have to really believe that, you know, you can't control it all. You, can't, you can barely control yourself. How are you going to control, you know, anybody else? And any attempts to even control, like, there's are control within your own family. All that winds up with is abused, emotionally abused children and, you know, all sorts of weird stuff that happens. So, like, it, it all just keeps propagating it. It just keeps telling you at every level. And all information is fractal in this sense. So we can talk about, like, the helium atom, but then we can start talking about societies. When you start talking about this stuff and you start realizing that errors multiply, now, foundational errors multiply. Now, we're getting a bunch of wind here, so I'm sorry if this oh, is no worries. It's, ugly. it's part of the part um, of the Florida atmosphere, you know. It, it really is. Um, I'm going to probably have to. I may even have to move inside at some point. But um, I mean, I'm, I'm on my porch. I'm fine. But um, the uh, once you realize that errors multiply, they're not additive. Like very quickly, the noise overwhelms the signal, and you really the more you try and study any of these systems, the more you know you don't know anything, and you know, it's a very humbling process. And, you know, that's where I came from. That's where I learned it. 
and there are other ways to learn it. And there are other, other metaphors through which to learn it, you know. And it's why ultimately why Davos would fail because lies, because what they're trying to do is they're trying to sell you lies as truth. And lies are expensive, but the truth sells itself. Well, that's a, that's a great way to uh, sort of wind things down, Tom. And uh, maybe as we do so, one thing I want to pick your brain a little bit on uh, before we head over to the smoke-filled room to the bonus show um, is just seeing where things are going, kind of having the kind of knowledge you have. And you, know, you can use this to tease your Patreon a little bit, I guess. But I'm just curious how what advice you can give to people, not financial advice necessarily, but just sort of big picture advice on how to look at our personal finances through this lens of what's going on, this sort of war between different central banking philosophies different central banking fractions it could definitely be argued that none of them have the interest of like the common man in mind so what is the cam- common man to do in this situation um the best advice i can give people is um i did a i did a podcast with a good with a friend of mine who recently chris sullivan who runs a hyperion decimus it's a uh, it's a bitcoin hedge fund i think it's episode 131 of my podcast and chris really came into that conversation with look and just like re- reminded even me, because you get lost in all the details of this stuff as you go along, that money is not an end unto itself. They have tried to tell us that money is, a means, is an end to itself. It's not. It's a means to an end. Right? Real wealth is what you pass on to your posterity. Real wealth is what takes, alleviates your anxiety about the future. So whatever you're anxious about, get rid of them. So. If you're in debt, get rid of your debts. If you don't have enough gold, you don't have enough tangible assets, buy some tangible assets if you've got leftover money. If you are worried that you're going to lose your job, start building new skills to, allow, to make yourself more valuable in the marketplace. Like, if you don't have skills, like if you think that, you know, they're gonna, that, that we're going to wind up you know, in Mad Max, well, you know, learn how to use a screwdriver. I built a house 20 years ago in order to make sure that I had basic friggin' skills. Yeah. Like even in I Mad Max, a, there's just, people offering their services for in exchange for money. So, you know, but at the end of the day, how about you go out and you find somebody who knows something that you don't know. And then think about what you're good at. Think about whether or not that's going to have value or is that going to get depreciated quickly in a deglobalizing world and then decide what you're going to, you know, and then figure out how you can shore up those worries, right? And so you're looking to shore up your anxieties at this point. That's the best I can tell you. And that means becoming a better, bigger, uh, becoming a, a more prominent member of your own community as well. It's really important. I think that's great advice all around, Tom. So uh, we'll wrap this one up. I know you're going to hop into the smoke-filled room with me. We'll uh, we'll get a little weirder in there, perhaps. But uh, feel free before that to uh, plug away on everything you got going on. Gold, goats, guns, the whole shebang. Sure. So Gold, Goats, and Guns, as you pointed out at the beginning, is a podcast. It's a blog. It's a newsletter. It's a Patreon service. Um, Ultimately, the blog is over TomLuongo.me. I post almost everything over there. But there's a lot of the content that I, I post is behind my Patreon wall for my subscribers private podcasts known as market reports, private posts known as the morning munching, some of which get turned into public posts. Um, we offer a monthly uh, investment newsletter. It's a retail investor newsletter. It's all bespoke material uh, with, a, uh, with a, a, a portfolio strategy and all the rest of it. Um, you know, that's what we do. And uh, we take it very seriously. 
And uh, we try and tie all these things together, and we're constantly trying to look ahead as to where we're, where we're going. But we look at my both Dexter White and I look at this from a multiple perspectives because we realize that you can't just look at financial markets. You have to also look at trends within the culture, within the politics, which are downstream of culture, as Andrew Breitbart reminded us. Like, all of this stuff is very, very important. And so it's about reminding people how to assess information and then giving them better tools, general tools for assessing information so that they can fish. I don't want to give you a fish. I want to, I want to teach you to fish. And then we'll go from there. And, and we just look for different metaphors by which to teach that to you. Right. Because a lot of people, you know, I mean, in Davos's goal has been to tell us we don't know, we don't have to think critically about any of this right. stuff. Let us handle they it. Don't want us, they don't want us to think critically. They want us to just accept it, stay in fight or flight all day long. And if I can help demystify the world for you, then you don't spend as much time anxious about the future. You spend more time of your precious, very precious time, scarce time, preparing accordingly for the life you want to lead. Because that's ultimately what this is all about. All right, Tom. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. We'll uh, hop over to the smoke-filled room and talk a little bit more, but appreciate you coming on my show. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Mark. All right, gang. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Tom Luongo, a fellow Florida man, and our conversation continued in the smoke-filled room when we did, in fact, go a little bit deeper on what's going on with the banking system. Uh, Tom gave his thoughts on Jerome Powell's motivations. What is his deal, so to speak? What is motivating him to be such a stalwart uh, here against the uh, the European Davos crowd, so to speak? So we dive into that a bit. We also get his predictions on where he sees things going politically for the United States. Uh, will the United States break up? Will the central banking system break up in some way? We got into all of that in the smoke-filled room, always available early and often for my premium subscribers. You can do so on Patreon. You can support the show on Rockfin. You can support the show on Subscribestar. I don't really care how you do it. I don't even care if you do it. Of course I care. I'd like you to. But really, just the fact that you're here listening, uh, hopefully sharing the show, telling friends about it, hopefully getting value out of it for yourself. I'm grateful for that. But if you would like to take some change out of your pocket, so to speak, and help me do this as well, it's much appreciated. So patreon.com slash Show, uh, Subscribestar, Rockfin, like I said, you can find them all. Every link is available for you if you just go to markclair.com, M-A-R-C-C-L-A-I-R.com. And there's a couple of great ones up there right now. There's a couple of bangers that should be up there by the time uh, this drops. You should have also, in addition to this episode, you should have my conversation with David Gornoski, a great one, which includes a smoke-filled room that I, I can truly say is my favorite podcast segment. I'm not kidding, ever recorded. And it's a it's a it's basically a 30-minute pro wrestling analogy, which might give you a reason why I enjoyed it so much. But it's, it's incredible. You got to go dive into that one, as well as my conversation with Isaac Weishaupt, the Illuminati watcher himself, uh, pretty much the number one guy out there. There, as far as I'm concerned, when it comes to identifying and analyzing occult symbolism uh, in the media and in pop culture, I had an awesome conversation with Isaac Weishaupt. The extended premium versions are all available right now, supporting me anywhere you like. Patreon, Subscribestar, Rockfin. Uh, I appreciate each and every one of you, paid subscriber or just normie. I'm glad you're here too. Thank you so much. Appreciate your time as always. Until next time, in case I don't see you, good afternoon, good evening, and buenas noches. Mm-hmm.